The first page caught my eye. I swallowed the first sentence and kept on going. Credit a compulsive eye if you want, but also a story with an immediate hook. It wasn't anything more than a fish going for a bright flash. This bright flash, as Stephen King's wife Tabitha calls it, is Carrie. Well, a small chunk of the beginning of the first draft of Carrie, anyway. But Tabby hasn't spotted King's Carrie manuscript in his typewriter. No, 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 no. It's in his trash can. He's given up on Carrie, and the tumultuous tale of King's journey to publish Carrie began in our previous episode. Now, with Tabitha's help and guidance, with writing the world of teenage girls, Stephen sets out to write Carrie. And with the help and guidance from his editor at Doubleday, Bill Thompson, Stephen will finally get his first novel into the hands of readers across the globe. But if you think what remains of Carrie's path to publication is going to be smooth sailing, oh, you think again, constant listeners, because there's a lot more trouble coming King's way in Carrie Part 2, a blockbuster book. Welcome to the Stephen Kingdom. Decades, his works of horror, suspense, science fiction, and fantasy have terrified and delighted audiences around the world. The exceptional Stephen King. Mr. Stephen King. Stephen King. Stephen King. Mr. Stephen King. We begin with Stephen King. Stephen King. The first emotion in both humor and horror is this sort of childish delight. Hi, Georgie. I'm your number one fan. Here's Johnny. Fiction is a lie, but good fiction is the truth inside the lie. Remember when Stephen was submitting novel after novel to editor Bill Thompson over at Doubleday only to be rejected again and again? Well, Bill Thompson certainly remembers. After all, he's positive. He has a hit writer on his hands. He just needs to find that writer's right hit. And hey, it's been a hot minute since he's heard from Stephen, so he sends Stephen a country music calendar. Both men had a soft spot for, quote, really trashy country music. And attached is a note from Bill. Did you know that your birthday is the same as A.P. Carter's? What have you been doing lately? I don't want to see your name on a bestseller list for Simon & Schuster. Luckily, Bill's FOMO paid off because the next thing he gets in the mail? A manuscript of Carrie. With a caveat from King. Tabby fished this out of the wastebasket. I don't think it's any good at all, but go ahead and give it a read. As we'll see in later chapters of our Carrie Megasode, Stephen has many, many, many qualms with Carrie, and he makes no bones about having a positively torturous time writing it. So, when Bill gets this curt note from the author saying it's no good and it's basically trash, well, that didn't exactly instill confidence. But Bill, after reading and passing on a handful of Stephen's previous novels, he knew he finally had a winner on his hands with Carrie. Except for the ending. In the first draft, when the prom explodes, Carrie turns into a giant figure, literally. She develops horns, lightning comes from her fingertips, and she blasts an airplane out of the sky. I felt strongly that he needed to get rid of that ending and turn it into something just as lethal, but not a comic book. Horns and fingertip lightning, huh? Well, (laughs) that's one way to go, Stephen. By this point, Bill and Stephen had fostered such a friendly, trusting relationship that Stephen incorporated Bill's notes into his rewrites, bringing the final quarter of the novel into line with the rather low-key development of what had gone before. No more horns, no more lightning. These rewrites resulted in the more grounded ending we have today. Well, grounded for a high school girl losing control of her telekinetic powers anyway. Now, keep in mind, they also reached this exact same stage with getting it on. Rewrites galore, only to end in a very polished, but very unpublished novel. 
So Bill and Stephen proceeded with cautious optimism. It's finally time to submit Carrie to the higher-ups, and remember, they do not like Bill, formerly from Sales Thompson. First, he has to get three supporting readings from his fellow editors, all of whom have to love Carrie as much as Bill does. And then, the real work begins, says Bill. I worked like a dog to get it published. You go to the business department and say, I want to give this guy $5,000 for this book. It's going to be 240 pages and five and a half by eight and a quarter, and I know we can sell 20,000 copies. They say they can publish it at 495 if those numbers are true. Then you go to sales and say, I want you to advance 15,000 copies of this novel. Sales will say, are you kidding? For a first novel by an unknown author, we'll be lucky if we get 5,000 out there. You put all your pieces together, hope it adds up and works out. Both men's hard work led to a luncheon in New York to discuss Carrie's publication. A luncheon that Stephen took the Greyhound to, thanks to $75 he borrowed from his wife's grandmother. The lunch was somewhat of a gaffapalooza. Unable to sleep on the bus, a groggy Stephen showed up with blisters on his feet thanks to his fancy new shoes, ordered two gin and tonics, got drunk, and chowed down on some sloppy fettuccine, which Stephen recalls as a dish bearded young men should avoid. Overall, though, the luncheon was a success, Stephen leaving with the promising odds of Carrie's publication at 60-40 in his favor. Now all Stephen had to do was return to Maine and wait. We didn't have a phone, and I got a message over the intercom. I was in the teacher's room, and it was, Stephen King, please come to the office. You have an urgent call from your wife. And I knew going up that either a kid had broken his leg or I sold the book. And it was the book. The editor from Doubleday had sent a telegram. It said, congratulations, carry officially a Doubleday book, advance $2,500, the future lies ahead, love, Bill. The future lies ahead. And indeed it did, but not quite yet. The first printing of the hardback was a modest 30,000 copies, and what readers found on bookstore shelves on April 5th, 1974, was a shoddily bound, thin hardback featuring a mysterious-looking woman who was more fashion model than awkward outcast teenager. Which, yeah, it wasn't exactly what Stephen and Bill had in mind for Carrie, said Stephen. My editor and I had our own concept for that. Our concept of the jacket was to have a Grandma Moses-type primitive painting of a New England village that would go around in a wrap to the back. But again, Stephen was an unknown quantity, and man, those Doubleday folks really had it in for Bill's sales department, Thompson, who, according to Stephen, was a man with relatively little power at Doubleday, and it kept showing up in funny little ways. When I left Doubleday, they canned him. And what did readers of this unknown author's first novel find on the back of this book that featured a mysterious model and not an age-appropriate telekinetic teenager? Not a synopsis. Oh, no, 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 no. Stephen King's story will stun your sensibilities, jangle your nerve endings, and make you wonder even more. And right out of the gate, King and his debut novel were inextricably linked with the world of horror. In its advanced reading copy, Doubleday included a letter that said, We feel it may be the novel of the year, a headlong narrative with the drive and relentless power of the exorcist, with the high-volted shock of Rosemary's baby. More than that, it is part of a rare breed in today's fiction market, a good story. We think Carrie and Stephen King have a bright future, and we welcome this chance to share both of them with you. 
Aside from being incredibly prescient, this letter also gave up the game that Carrie was riding the coattails of a new boom in horror. The late 60s and early 70s saw the release of two juggernauts, The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby, both of which were huge hits as novels and as films. So horror was on the rise again, and as a novel from a first-time author, Carrie certainly benefited from this resurgence in mature, classy, and scary horror. As if that weren't enough, Carrie's publication followed up an absolutely staggering one-two punch in horror history. December 26th, 1973, saw the release of The Exorcist, William Friedkin's adaptation of William Peter Blatty's hit novel that went on to become the highest grossing horror film of all time. A record that would only be beaten over 40 years later by the 2017 adaptation of It, a novel by you know who. And then, just two months before the publication of Carrie in February 1974, a new novel unleashed a different kind of horror on readers everywhere. A horror not demonic, not supernatural, but a horror that is very much of our world. Underwater. A cloud in the shape of a killer shark. From the best-selling novel, Jaws. Needless to say, the horror pump was primed, and readers wanted scares more than ever, which is why Doubleday's press release for Carrie emphasized the novel's horror elements above all else, with the library journal deeming King's debut novel as the bloodiest book of the year. Menstrual blood, blood of childbirth and miscarriage, blood of a whole town dying, and finally, the lifeblood of the heroine draining away. All that blood mm, almost sounds like a metaphor or something. The press release cannily left out that the library journal ultimately did not recommend the book. But at the end of the day, reviews were on the positive side, with the New York Times Newgate Calendar praising Carrie as exceedingly well-written and deeming it a novel that was guaranteed to give you a chill. And yet, Carrie's initial run was rather lackluster compared to the likes of The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, and Jaws. Numbers vary, but sales were somewhere between 13 and 18,000 copies, certainly nothing close to the 30,000 copies that were printed. Part of Carrie's underperformance, ironically enough, was because of Jaws, a fellow horror novel upon whose coattails Carrie was certainly writing. You see, Jaws was also a Doubleday book, and there's only so much marketing money to go around. So Doubleday doubled down on Jaws and left Carrie somewhat adrift at sea. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Don't forget to tip your waiters. <laughs> I'll be here all week, thank you. But hey, people were reading Carrie, just maybe not always having the kind of reaction Stephen wanted. The first time that I ever actually saw that book in someone's hands that I didn't know was this lady in first class on this airplane, and I was drunk when I saw it. <laughs> and she was sitting there and reading this book with my name across the front. And I thought, okay, I'm up and walking in this turbulent plane because I have to go to that room at the front of the plane. And when I come back, I'm going to ask her how she likes that book. And when she tells me she likes it, I'm going to sign it for her. I'm going to say, I wrote that book. And if I have to show her my driver's license to prove it, I will. <laughs> so I went uh, up to the little room and I came back and I said, uh, how do you like that book? And she said, I think it's shitty. You know what, lady? Nobody cares what you think anyway. If things had ended there, we may not know Stephen King as the prolific powerhouse we do today, but two things happened that would forever tip Ka in King's favor, 
a revolution in the paperback industry, and the movie adaptation of Carrie. If Doubleday had gotten 80 grand for the Carrie paperback auction, they would have been pleased as punch. But Bob Tanner, president of New English Library, had other plans. Bob Tanner sees enormous potential with Carrie and promptly sends it up the corporate ladder to New York, where Elaine Coster, publisher at New American Library, reads it, hops on the horn with Doubleday, and says, We want it. As all of this is happening, Stephen's back in Maine on pins and needles, his $2,500 hardcover earnings already dwindling. My wife asked me, I can remember one night, we were lying in bed after the book had been sold, and she said, do you think there will be any more money than the $2,500 advance? <laughs> no, I mean, it was a fair question, and $2,500 was a lot. The most I'd ever made from a short story sale was 500 And I said, yes, I think there'll be a paperback sale. We share the money with Doubleday. It was a 50-50 split. And she said, how much do you think it might be? And I said, well, it might be as much as $60,000. Once again, Stephen's modest expectations were just slightly surpassed. For paperback sales, he got, uh, let me check my math here. Let's see, uh, hmm. carry five times 19. That can't be right. $400,000? I got that news from my editor on a Sunday. My wife was up visiting her mother and I was in the house. She'd taken the kids. I was there by myself and I just slid down the doorway between the kitchen and the living room and sat there and said, you said 40,000, right? <laughs> and he said, no, $400,000. And we had the conversation and I just walked around the house and finally I couldn't gather my thoughts and I finally decided I had to buy my wife a present. Time to celebrate the King family's emancipation from poverty. So Stephen goes out to buy Tabitha an extravagant surprise Mother's Day gift. Wow, okay, hmm. a gift for the woman who saved Carrie from the trash and thus played a huge role in garnering the king's this staggering sum of money. What does Stephen get her? Hmm, Alaskan cruise tickets, timeshare, Lambo with the suicide doors, Lambo. a hairdryer at a drugstore for $29. Hey, don't blame Stephen. Everything was closed on Sundays, but still, a hairdryer? Come on, Stephen. Ah, well, at least he got a little karma for his cheapness in the form of crippling fear of his own mortality. See, on the way home, he was struck with the intense idea that things were just too good to be true. He couldn't get it out of his head that the universe had to somehow uh, level things out and that he'd be blindsided by a car mere blocks from his home. But no, Stephen made it home safely, and Tabby's hair has never been wet since. Hey there, constant listeners. Did you know the Stephen Kingdom is also a YouTube show? It's a show that viewers have called impressive, informative, fantastic, astounding, and manic and energetic, but in a good way. And best of all, it's free, just like this podcast. But making a podcast in a YouTube series isn't free. It costs a lot of money to keep the lights on at the Stephen Kingdom, which is why we have a Patreon. Supporters of the Stephen Kingdom Patreon get all sorts of exclusive content, including deleted and extended material, early access to episodes, and your name in the credits. Speaking of which, our sincerest thank you to the following patrons who have helped make the Stephen Kingdom possible so far. 
James and Justine Cameron, Janine Cameron, Teresa Davies, Kevin Del Cole, David Isaacs, Lucille McCracken, Nico Peichman, Liz Reedford, and Joel Walden. We couldn't have done it without you. Carrie's journey from almost trash to literary behemoth has been quite the roller coaster ride, and believe it or not, we haven't even reached the zenith yet. But I want to pause here to talk about a subject that's present in pretty much every single one of Stephen King's works death. Carrie certainly has plenty of it, not the least of which is the death of Carrie White herself. But aside from Carrie, there is another woman whose death is inextricably linked to the novel's long and winding journey. Stephen King's mother. There is no shortage of enormously important women in Stephen's life, and while we've focused mainly on Tabitha so far, we will hear so much more about Nellie Ruth Pillsbury King in future episodes, most notably when we explore young Stephen's early years. But by the time he was working on Carrie, Nellie was getting warning signs from her body that would all too eerily mirror Carrie White's. Nellie hadn't flown in 20 years, but on the return flight from her sister's funeral in 1971 or 72, Stephen can't quite remember which, she began to bleed profusely. Stephen recounts the beginning of his mother's end in on writing. Although long past her change of life by that point, she told herself it was simply one final menstrual period. Locked in the tiny bathroom of a bouncing TWA jet, she stanched the bleeding with tampons. Plug it up, plug it up, as Sue Snell and her friends might have cried. Then return to her seat. Uterine cancer. The end came in February of 1974, just a few months shy of seeing her son's first novel in print. Stephen's brother Dave woke him up at 6.15 in the morning, and when Stephen, hungover from drinking too much the night before, groggily got to the master bedroom of his dying mother, he saw there. Beside her bed, reflected over and over again in a cluster of glasses, was an early bound galley of Carrie. Aunt Ethelin had read it to her aloud a month or so before she died. Mom's eyes went from Dave to me, Dave to me, Dave to me. My boys, she said, then lapsed into what might have been sleep or unconsciousness. Dave held one of her hands and I held the other. We could hear the pause after each rasping breath she drew growing longer and longer. Finally, there were no more breaths and it was all pause. Stephen gave the eulogy at his mother's funeral. I think I did a pretty good job, considering how drunk I was. Nellie didn't get to see the heights her son would reach, but she did get to see something perhaps even more important, says Stephen. She knew everything was going to be all right. Everything was going to be all right. For the ones we love, really, what else is there? We want to know they're going to be all right. I've often thought about Stephen's loss of his mother in relation to the recent loss of my own father. He was a stockbroker in a small Indiana town, and it took a lot of guts for him to split off from a big firm and go off on his own, find his own clients, make his own way. So while his left brain profession was about as far away as you could possibly get from my foolhardy right brain inclinations of writing and filmmaking, we both had a deep connection when it came to chasing our dreams, trying to make our own way, and following our own vision, even if that vision didn't always pan out. He was my biggest fan, even when I had nothing to show for it. And I was lucky enough for him to see me at least have some modicum of success. My graduation from the MFA film program at USC, my first feature, Bullet County, doing 
pretty good at festivals, making it into theaters, popping up on VOD, although he passed away just a few weeks before it came to Netflix. I think he really would have loved that. And I think about Stephen King, and I think about his mother dying before the world would come to know him as one of our most iconic living writers. And I think about her getting to read Carrie before it's published, but knowing it will be, and knowing that it's going to make her son's life and the life of his family just a little bit easier, a little more comfortable. All her son's hard work, all those years he spent slumped over a typewriter, unleashing story after story after story, sometimes making a few bucks off them, but most of the time not. Maybe the surf was finally starting to break. Maybe it was finally at last going to pay off for her son. And pay off it did. After the $400,000 paperback sale, Carrie was certainly doing all right, or at least Stephen, Tabby, Naomi, and Joe were. But that gargantuan chunk of change was a vote of confidence, not a guarantee of paperbacks flying off the shelves. No, the ace up Carrie's sleeve wasn't even from the world of publishing. On December 5th, 1976, a month after the release of Brian De Palma's film adaptation of Carrie, starring Sissy Spacek as Carrie White, the movie tie-in paperback hit the shelves and launched Carrie onto the New York Times bestseller list, staying there for 14 weeks. The paperback sales totaled 4 million copies and still counting. Not a bad investment, I'd say, for a $400,000 book and a far cry from those middling hardback sales, said Stephen of his own success. I started out as a storyteller. Along the way, I became an economic force. Stephen makes no bones about the success of the movie being directly responsible for the book's stratospheric success. The movie made the book, and the book made me. But no matter how many movie adaptations, and awards, and accolades, and presidential medals, and YouTube series, and podcasts devoted to his life and works, Stephen has never forgotten how it all began. Trying and failing trying and failing over and over and over and then succeeding only because he had that secret magic that is more important than all the money and all the success in all the world. Someone who believed in him. Tabby. Her support was a constant. One of the few good things I could take as a given. And whenever I see a first novel dedicated to a wife or a husband, I smile and think, there's someone who knows. <laughs> Writing is a lonely job. Having someone who believes in you makes a lot of difference. They don't have to make speeches. Just believing is usually enough. Believing is enough. Carrie's life began as just another short story, something Stephen could fire off at night while teaching during the day. Something that could maybe keep the lights on a little longer, keep food on the table, and keep the creditors at bay. Certainly nobody could have known just how successful Carrie would become, least of all Stephen himself. But there is a difference between knowing and believing. When readers crack open a copy of Carrie, the first thing they'll see is Stephen's dedication to his wife. This is for Tabby, who got me into it, and then bailed me out of it. We too shall get into it in our next episode as we dive into Stephen's writing process for Carrie. We know it ends well with an iconic bestseller, but the nitty-gritty day-to-day work on Carrie is almost as nail-biting as the book itself. Join us in Carrie Part 3, Starting the Fire.
You can find The Stephen Kingdom, both the podcast and the YouTube series on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you want to help us keep both the podcast and the YouTube series going, consider supporting our Patreon, where you can get all sorts of exclusive content. The Stephen Kingdom is hosted and written by me, David McCracken, and is produced and mixed by Josh Reedford. Original music by Aaron Reedford. And a special thanks to David Isaacs as the voice of Bill Thompson and Christina White as Tabitha, as well as Liz Reedford, Aaron Reedford, and Janine Cameron for providing additional voices. Long days and pleasant nights, constant listeners.